This is Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against rising social risk and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the principal of Adamantine Energy. Everyone in our industry is facing massive disruption. And so this season, um, the third season, I'm speaking with game-changing leaders in our industry or adjacent who respond to disruption by becoming the disruptors themselves. Who are these disruptors and how do they embrace disruption as a business strategy? That's what you and I together are gonna find out throughout this season. On today's show, I speak with David Victor. He is, first of all, such an interesting person, but also professor of innovation and public policy at UC San Diego. I wanted to talk to David because he's a force of nature, but also he was the lead author on the paper behind engine number one's shareholder activism against Exxon. I don't know that I agree with David on many things, but I do know that he is either a worthy adversary or a grandmaster that I need to learn from. Perhaps he's both. We'll find out together. You can learn more about David's impressive biography in our show notes. And to learn more about the Energy Thinks podcast and our work at Adam and Teen, check out energythinks.com. Now here's my conversation with game-changing leader, David Victor. David Victor, welcome. And thank you for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast. Well, it's great to be with you today. So you have a very unique seat and um, I'd love to hear from you what you think one factor oil and gas companies are not considering as they're carrying out their ESG strategies today. Yeah, so it's been interesting to watch this industry because the industry in various ways knows that big changes are afoot and yet for the most part, hasn't really done very much about it. And that's especially true for smaller firms and for for non-Western firms. The number one thing that I think companies are not dealing with properly is the risk of very rapid political shift. And you see this, for example, in the gas industry, which has for a long time thought it's in the catbird seat around deep decarbonization because you shift to gas as a strategy for reducing emissions, at least to a point. So the industries have thought that they were thrilled and they're going to be will prosper in that world. And what we're seeing instead is elements of not yet a widespread movement, but elements of a political shift against all fossil fuels. We've certainly seen a big shift against firms that are not doing a good job managing methane emissions. And I think most of the industry has been caught um, flat-footed in that because they've thought about this problem the way an engineer would think about it, which is good. I'm glad that we have a lot of engineers there and not been thinking mm-hmm. about the political momentum. When at Adam and Teen, we talk to our clients about how to think about and lead into the energy future. One of the things we advise is fast following. So, of course, I was super um, interested when I read in your engine number one paper um, that fast following is equated to fast death. And this really caused my team just to stop and think. And so I'd love to hear from you why you think that is, and are there exceptions to that? Um, because we're, we're taking a deep look at how this affects the strategies we recommend. Yeah, so the, probably the most famous fast follower in history was Microsoft, where you watch what other people do and you let them take all the risk or a lot of the risk, and then most of them die, some of them don't, and the ones that don't die, you mimic them and you rapidly catch up and then take over market share. Fast following is a strategy that works when you can observe in the outside world 
the key lessons from working with a new technology or a new business. Um, and you can quickly internalize those and scale them. So that's a great strategy in those conditions. Most of what's transformative in the oil and gas industry isn't like that. <clears throat> if it involves watching how some advance in seismic uh, is used to map out an oil and gas resource, fast follow away, in part because you're gonna be hiring companies that are gonna be doing the fast following for you, and so that's great. But if the future involves totally transforming your business, um, and using technologies and new business models in ways that nobody really has any experience with, then it's actually the experience of working with the technologies as a system and working with your company and figuring out what your workers are going to do and how you're going to manage this, how you're going to manage this new business while managing the old business to some degree into extinction. And, and that requires working it, requires worked examples as opposed to fast following. And that's the core logic coming out of, of, in some sense, the, the idea from Clay Christensen of the innovator's dilemma that firms that are very good in their industry are very good at making advances inside their industry, but then they get trapped there. In some sense, there's a fast followers dilemma, which is companies that think they're good at fast following might be good at fast following for that domain of technologies and businesses where fast following works. And our argument in the paper is that that's not the case for the things that are really transformative. And we'll link to the paper in the show notes because it's it's really important for our all of our consideration. And I want to keep pushing on this idea because I think it's so important that fast following works when you understand the landscape you're working in, and it doesn't during the energy transition, for example, because the out the world is changing. Can you talk a little bit about the internal culture shifts that need to happen while this working is happening, this working, the innovation is happening? What do you think, in what ways do companies need to change? And does this require a lot of new hires or a lot of new training? How does, a, how does an incumbent firm make those internal cultural evolution changes? Yeah, so I think part of the key point is actually we don't know. Um, we got a lot of firms trying stuff. Most of it will fail. A lot of companies right now are becoming electric companies. They've tried that before. It ended very badly. Um, my guess is that most of the oil and gas companies that want to become electric companies this time around, that will fail as well. It's a totally different business and they're late to the party. Um, but I think a key, the key point is we don't actually know. That's why you have to wor work on this. I, I do think that there are at least two things that are going to be very important for companies to pay attention to. One is that the nature of the risk and the return in most of the energy transition technologies and businesses is totally different from the nature of risk and return in the conventional upstream oil and gas plays, where the conventional upstream oil and gas plays um, involve running a global portfolio, being a specialist in managing high risk early stage and in some places mature fields that need new technology. And then you amortize and affect that risk around a global portfolio and you do the better job at that than your competitors and so you have these super normal returns. And that's what we've seen in the upstream industry for, for a long time. For the transition, it's very different. And a lot of the things that companies are going into in the transition have intrinsically very low returns on, on capital like the like uh, commodity renewables plays. So now the returns on capital with, except for brief moments when the oil price goes up, the returns of capital in the core business have been low as well. So one thing that that's very different, that's very unfamiliar is managing the nature of risk re return. And it's unfamiliar not only for the company, but for the shareholders. And the other thing that's really different is the role of government. I think the, the oil and gas industry, especially smaller firms, independent firms, are independent, not just in, in ownership, but also in culture. They've kind of seen the government as the enemy. 
And their ideal world is a world where the government is, you know, held at bay at gunpoint and not your friend. And the the kinds of things that are that are at the center of the energy transition right now, like um, Equinor's um, Northern Lights project in, in the North Sea, those things are so big and so risky that you have to socialize risk across a few firms and you have to get government involved. And just using that phrase socialize makes a lot of people in the conventional oil and gas industry makes the hair stand up on end for them. And yet that in fact is exactly what you need to do. And so you need a whole set of skills about working with government that are more than just good good tax treatment. I'd like to, to pull on that because I'm really interested in this idea. We work with companies on, on transcending these political identities, which you uh, reference in, in how companies respond to this idea of government intervention or policy engagement. And a theme that comes out of your papers is that policy could be the friend of companies who are active, proactively transitioning in this aggressive way that you recommend. Can you give a, a, a discrete example of how policy could actually be an oil and gas company's friend as it becomes an energy company? Yeah, so the simple example that comes to everybody's mind is, is special tax treatment and subsidies and things like that. We see that going on right now in the U.S. with carbon capture and storage and the 45Q provisions, which have now been clarified. And so you see a bunch of projects moving forward that are 45Q driven. What we're talking about in the paper, though, is something different. It's beyond, way beyond that. Uh, because when, you're, when you adjust prices at the margin and you're working with known technologies, then the firm looks at the prices and looks at the available subsidy and things like that and says, okay, now we've got a project that's in the money, let's go do the project. You see a bunch of CCUS projects really go forward in that, uh, in, in, in that basis. Okay. But what you need to do for the energy transition is, is put into place technologies and businesses that are much riskier. And so you need not just 45Q kinds of subsidies, but you also need some protection from government that if you make a prudent investment in some new kind of power plant, for example, and the thing craters, that you're gonna be kept whole enough that the downside risk on the equity side is not so catastrophic that you don't do anything. Um, that's more or less how the subsidy arrangement is working in the North Sea with the role of the Norwegian government and the EU, but it's particularly the Norwegian government. And there's no accident that you've got Equinor based in Norway, which is a state-owned oil company, but not really, that has a very close relationship with the government that wants to make a transformative investment. And, and it's what that's what holds the whole project uh, together. Mm. And so absent those kinds of relationships, what you're going to see are a lot of projects that pencil out that aren't really transformative. And uh, we did a study, released it in January, I think, um, where we looked at the history of carbon capture and storage projects and trying to explain what explains success and failure. And one of the things we did as part of that is we went back and looked at the death rate of different kinds of projects. Of projects that are announced, how many of them actually survived operation? And for gas processing projects, low technology risk, you're just looking for a change in tax treatment or whatever it is, and boom, your project is economic. For gas processing projects, the death rates, you know, maybe 30%, if that. It's very, very low death rate for, for big industrial projects. For transformative power plant CCS projects, the death rate is 95%, because there's a much bigger risk. And so you gotta get everything lined up and then hold your project together. And the moment one, one wheel on that bus comes off, the whole bus goes into the gutter. Mm, that's a really interesting way. It's a complete paradigm shift of thinking 
about policy as both shepherd and protector and maybe even guardrail um, that, that I find really interesting. Let, let's keep going with this idea of um, the human element from, from policymakers to uh, be, you know, behavioral economics. Earlier this summer, you co-authored a paper um, talking about the limits of models. And I don't want to go into models because we don't have enough time for that. But I do want to get your thoughts on the limits of human behavior in decarbonization, because this is an important counterpoint that an industry executive can credibly make, which is people are aren't making this transition, the, the, the consumers aren't making this transition. So companies have to hedge their bets and continue some amount of business as usual. So I'm interested in how you think about the human element affecting decarbonization and how that informs companies' business strategies. Yeah, so I mean, all models are simplifications and some of them are useful simplifications. And what has been happening in the energy modeling world, which is the world that I partially inhabit, is we've had a whole bunch of simplifications because the models need to be tractable. And the simplifications have mainly taken the form of assuming that the price mechanism is the main way that businesses and, and individuals, consumers interact with their energy supply system and make choices about what kinds of energy to buy. And therefore firms make choices about where to invest. And that's been a very helpful, more than very helpful, profound simplification that is the core of economic logic, but it's incomplete. And in areas where markets are changing very rapidly and that change interacts with policy, the capacity to understand systematically um, where and how voters are going to be mobilized, where and how governments are going to be mobilized to make big shifts in policy that then affect business, that's what's really important. And so this article that we published in Nature uh, earlier this, this summer is about that. And not just making the argument, gee whiz, people matter, because that's an unhelpful argument, because you know, it's mostly true, but doesn't tell you what to do the next morning. But it's laying out, there are a handful of places where we now have the tools available to be able to do much more systematic modeling that brings people in, in the way they make real decisions into, uh, into the equations. Let me give you two quick examples. One example is um, people react much more to highly visible changes in price. Um, and, and therefore are politically more averse to those than they do to policy instruments that hide those impacts. That's hardly surprising. One of the reasons that matters is because almost all of our analytical work around the energy transition, where we try to try and model this and the model of policy, we use price instruments to do that, carbon taxes, for example. And yet when you look at the real world, what you see is the opposite, which is you see a lot of governments pretending to have carbon taxes or cap and trade systems, and they've got them, they're formally they're there. Um, um, but it's like one of those, those um, villages, fabled czarist villages, where you take the czar out, you look at the village, beautiful village, and hopefully nobody looks behind the facade to see there's nothing going on. So the market instruments aren't actually doing the work, it's regulations doing the work. So one of the areas where one really has to pay close attention to uh, how people are actually interacting with real policy instruments is the choice of the instrument. Because if you're using regulation instead of price instruments or market instruments, it has a very, very uh, different impact. Another example, just more briefly, is um, when do industries, when do the new industries of the future get themselves organized? So in trade, in people who study international trade have worked on this problem for a long time because it's crucial to understand the politics of international trade, which is when do you have a political coalition that wants open borders as opposed to closed borders? And one of the answers is it depends on whether the industries of the future have been able to gain enough market share to gain revenues from selling product and get themselves organized and so on. 
the same thing is happening now in the energy transition where you've got, it used to be a bunch of small companies run by dudes living in Berkeley, wearing Birkenstocks and smoking dope. And now mm-hmm. some of that's still going on, but the industries are much bigger. They're much more powerful, much better organized. And so when you build that into the models, the models show you an evolution of policy that's much faster in the direction of an energy transition because the political voice in favor of that gets, gets stronger much more, much more rapidly, gets stronger very quickly as that technology and new business takes off. The 2021 shareholder proxy season held important lessons for oil and gas companies with investors imposing new demands on targeted firms. What does all this mean for your company? Adam Mateen's latest white paper gives you our top line proxy season insights. Download it today at energythinks.com backslash papers. That's energythinks.com backslash papers. And now back to the show. That's a great point that I hadn't considered before as well as the getting themselves organized is going to be expedited by this just massive capital influx that's coming. Whether for, for, good, for good organization or, or ill, we'll, we'll see how it plays out. So let's keep, one of the things I love about your work is this pragmatic balance between the idealism and the vision and the pragmatism. So um, there is this huge, so undeniable social political pressure. And on the other pull side, there's uh, demand. There's hard to decarbonize sectors. There's this very durable uh, demand for oil and jet fuel and diesel. Um, how do you think about how an incumbent oil and gas company balances meeting those existing demands, which one could argue will be here for decades, and making this transition? Is this a half and half? Is this a split your, your company baby? Or um, do you think it's all about transitioning and leaving the, the um, resilient demand to the, the national oil companies that, that aren't going to make this transition? I mean, this is a hard job. This is much, it's much easier to run a pure play decarbonization firm, partly because 95% of them are going to go bankrupt and then you get Got to go find a new job. So you have a lot of employment opportunities there because you have unemployment opportunities. Whereas you're running an incumbent firm, you got to do both. So you got to run your mm-hmm. current core business and plan that core business for an uncertain but highly probable future. The speed of the transition is unknowable, but you got to deal with that in your core business. And then you got a whole new line of business, which is probably not a single line, but multiple lines because you don't know what's going to work that you got to run separately. I assume that these com- the more evidence that the incumbents are taking the decarbonization transition seriously will come in the form of corporate organization, which is they will split themselves um, or they will partially split themselves into organizations. And some of the European companies have done this kind of, you see this a little bit in the way capital is allocated in the companies, um, but that's because we're still in the early in the, in the early stages. And I think as a practical matter, this is, in the end, a lot of this can be demand-driven. So firms are going to be looking at what's the actual demand for oil and making production decisions around that. The gas is a very different animal because of its place nature and the infrastructure nature. And, um, and that's a much bigger challenge. It is, in my mind, the single greatest unknown in the future of the energy system is what happens to gas. It is the pivotal question. Oil is a little bit easier to see if we do de- decarbonization. So I think you got to run, you got to walk and chew gum at, at the same time. And, and you can't just walk away from your incumbent business 
partly because you got a lot of skills in that income to business that are that are helpful if you do you know downhole plays with regard to carbon capture and storage if you do uh, ultra deep offshore floating rigs for for uh, wind production you know and you see elements of that happening now in the oil and gas industry as firms you know put their toe or maybe up to their ankle into that new new industry yeah uh, I'll build off that a bit because in, in the um, engine number one paper, you lay out five iconic oil and gas solutions. And in, in our work, we think of those as decarb part of the decarbonization toolbox, like what companies can be looking at as part of their diversification solution. I'm curious if you're optimistic about these, if you believe that companies could focus on those five iconic solutions exclusively, or if they have to be diversifying into the, the unknown unknowns as well? I don't know right now. Um, and I think um, just metaphorically, they're not really toolboxes, they're whole workshops, right? Mm. So this is one of the challenges is that you got to build a workshop and then in your workshop, you've got toolboxes and some of your folks can take one toolbox from one workshop and move it to another. That's the, the um, downhole expertise around carbon storage and so on. But but metaphorically, we're really talking about building workshops and then having a, kind of the land there metaphorically to build more workshops as you as you learn about them. Um, example, if hydrogen production, uh, if the cost of hydrogen production come way down um, with a big caveat that we've got multiple methods for producing hydrogen right now and you've got the firms that have a lot of experience producing hydrogen or producing hydrogen in effect from natural gas and then you could decarbonize that to some degree and then you got a lot of other people who are excited about an electrolyzer future and just a huge number of un unknowns there but in a world where you're doing natural gas and you're doing uh, biofuels <clears throat> That's a world where you're using a lot of your existing infrastructure potentially. Yeah, I mean, doing hydrogen and biofuels. Uh, we're using your existing infrastructure to deliver products that are very similar to what you have right now, versus a world where we're doing something totally different, like we electrify even more mm -hmm. of end-use um, uh, services. My hunch is that we're going to end up with with a, a, a CNI and a heavy industry-oriented hydrogen play. And then we're going to have electricity and we're going to have two energy carriers in effect of the, mm. in the energy system of, of the future and the interplay between the, and therefore there could be specialist firms that, that work on the inter interplay between the hydrogen system and the electric system in effect for reasons of storage and, and, and grid integration of renewables. And that there could be a huge upside at that interplay, but is that upside going to be organized by the oil and gas companies or today companies that are in the oil and gas business that could be in a totally different business uh, in the future? Think, you know, IBM. Are there any of the mm -hmm. incumbent oil and gas companies that will be the IBMs of the future or are they all, um, uh, you know, going to be the um, firms that, that had a run and then they ended? Mm-hmm. Interesting. And uh, that, that was a great example. And it, it made me think of the, the key question you highlighted earlier, which is what's the future of natural gas? That's the big unknown. And um, what are the, the elements from your perspective that would encourage the success of natural gas? Is it its role in transitioning to setting the, the um, infrastructure for a hydrogen future? Is it all about reducing emissions? Is it finding its way to carbon capture sequestration? What are your thoughts about key elements of natural gas, natural gas's success? 
Yeah, so I think right now, this the the really profound play around gas is around thinking about gas as part of an infrastructure of gaseous fuels. So they're, they're in places that make the transition more slowly, you could have an infrastructure of gas pipelines and conventional natural gas going through it, a lot more renewables on the grid, and then the gas used in effect to firm the renewables. Um, when you run all that through a model, again, with the caveat that it's a simplification, but a useful simplification, when you run all that through a model, what happens is that the gas plants end up being utilized less. Load factors go down. The volume of gas consumption goes down compared to a world where the gas is the dominant part of the grid. But the value proposition from the gas is huge because in effect it's making a renewables future possible. And we see some of that on the Texas grid right now. We see that in the upper Midwest where there's a huge amount of wind. We see that in um, the Southwestern grids, uh, including where I live, California, when we've got a lot of that's solar dominated, we've got a lot of sun on the system. You can go up to and flirting with 100% solar for a while, but then what's really holding the whole thing together is some combination of hydro, a bit of storage, and a lot of natural gas. Moving to a future where there's zero emissions allowed is a very, very different world. And that's where the big mm -hmm. uncertainties come in. If there's a gaseous fuel that you can put in the pipeline network um, and use the pipeline network as a way to deliver and storage pipeline and storage system to deliver and store it, store um, a useful gaseous fuel, then that's gonna be a big part of the energy system of the future. That probably means either renewable natural gas, I'm a little skeptical about the scalability of that, but that's an open question, or it means hydrogen or something like that. And, and that's where just, we, 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 don't really, we don't really know. This is, this is just one last, or I guess two last quick points about this. One is um, the, the, the changes that are needed in the grid system and in the end using devices, if you're gonna blend a lot of hydrogen into that system, those changes are not trivial to organize. And that's, I think, why a lot of good thinking is pointing in the direction of having hydrogen system for CNI customers, so for specialists where you can use the properties of gas or gaseous fuel as a high capable of generating high heat, uh, have some interesting chemical properties if it's hydrogen and, and basically build, take current loads that are using conventional natural gas and convert a lot, as many of those to hydrogen as possible. And what you can't convert, you either leave alone or you convert to electricity. And that could be the play in a world where there's, where there's, a, lot of, where there's a lot of hydrogen. And, but we just don't know. And, and mm -hmm. that's something you have to really watch very closely. We had a piece um, last Sunday um, in the Los Angeles Times that is about this, and in particular, California's role in these kinds of puzzles, because places that are on the front lines are spending a lot of their own money pioneering new mm -hmm. technologies. And companies that want to watch what the future might be probably need to do a better job of watching what the front, what the pioneers are doing, not just to laugh when they fail, but to pay attention. Mm -hmm. And, and um, that's a little bit of fast following, but it's, mm -hmm. it's a, a much deeper implication, which is where the success stories are happening. You need to really be in the middle of that. If you're going to be in the middle of the transition. Right. It's a studious engaged fast following as opposed to a passive 
We'll, we'll come along after you're done. Great. Well, you, you've offered me a really nice new paradigm from the toolbox to the, the many workshops required. And um, part of creating this innovative culture within company is, is going to be embracing this other social risk pressure, which is around racial equity and justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'm curious if you have, if in your work, you've addressed the role that those elements are going to play in cultures of innovation and, and how companies might be thinking about that. No, I, I haven't, I've not studied that closely. So I'm a consumer of this information, not a, not a producer for the most part. And I think it's very, very interesting and important to work on. This is another one of these areas where companies really have to work on it because they have to figure out how they're gonna do it in their company such that they actually include as opposed to pretend to include. And that's, you know, that's the big, the big challenge. If you just pretend to include, then this is another, you know, corporate social responsibility market speak um, kind of thing. You produce a blo gro uh, glossy brochure, I guess we don't even do brochures anymore, but a website and boom, you're done. But if you're really going to include, then you've got to figure out how to include in the core part of the company, which is itself changing because of the energy, the energy transition. I will say though, there's one area where, um, the incumbent industry still has an important blind spot, which is about the environmental justice movement, the so-called EJ movement. Mm -hmm. um, and I've seen this here in California where there's been an assumption in a lot of the industry that environmental justice is kind of one of a bunch of stuff that's the greens wanting you know, lower emissions and not fundamentally understanding that the environmental justice movement <clears throat> is about inequality, it's about the location of plants, it's about um, adversity in the impacts, local pollution and noise impacts of plants and where they're located and so on. And the more that movement is definitive in shaping how the policies and the transition happens, the more that, that firms have to really pay attention to that. And I think we're now seeing that. Uh, we particularly see it in electric companies in part because electric companies in most of the industry are highly regulated. And so they're on the pointy edge of, of seeing how shifts in political preference affect, uh, affect regulation. I couldn't agree more. And I think this workshop metaphor is really important for testing and proving out how to create an inclusive environment. And through, through that inclusivity, companies are going to have more perspectives to embrace environmental justice in a way that's enduring and is a part of creating enduring transformation. So I, th I think you're right. And we see that movement is also core to companies' business risk and, and how they think about transitioning into the future. Um, I wanna pivot in our, in our final uh, little segment here to, to talk about you, David. Um, so you work at the Center for Global Transformation at, at UCSD and you're in the thick of thinking about our global economic and technology transformations, disruptions everywhere. How do you keep yourself and your team attuned to what's next? I imagine this is even occasionally disruptive for you. You think you have your handle on, you know, your, your mind, you have a handle on what's happening and then the next thing is here. How, how do you prepare and embrace that reality? Well, I mean, we do a lot of things and then we um, either let die or kill most of them. Um, mm. And we don't know at the beginning what 
what's going to be in, in, important. And we have the advantage in, in an academic setting of not having trillions of dollars of fixed assets at risk. Um, we can, you know, with the limits of our minds, which are very limited, because the mind has an interesting way of investing in things that are familiar <laughs> and avoiding things that are disruptive. With the limits of our minds um, and our modeling tools and so on, we can work on parts of this. Um, mm -hmm. So I, certainly in my research, I have, over the last 20 years, I have um, worked on a smaller number of questions it, with, with deeper analysis closer to the data. Um, 10 years ago, I was at Stanford and running a big research program. And whenever you're running a big research program, you're always further from the data than you want to be. And so I found myself, just as a matter of my own personal preference, closer to the data, closer to the modeling, in part because there are these little things that happen in the models that tell you a lot about how the world might change. And, and one example of this, we do a lot of modeling of the decentralization of the electric grid. So what mm. microgrids and onsite power and things like that and so on. When you start really working on that problem, what becomes clear is that the bulk of the microgrids and, that are interconnected with the macrogrids are actually natural gas backed. So they have gaseous fuels in the micro turbines and then a lot of renewables and some storage and things like this here. And then they, the blend varies on where you are and, and, and you know, how wealthy the patron is for your system and for the system that they've installed at their, at their factory or whatever it is. But, but fundamentally, there's this important role in the interaction between the gas system and electric system. <clears throat> we have almost no idea how that interaction, if it's if the decentralization of the grid really scales up, how that interaction is going to work. So we're now doing a whole bunch of work on that question that we would not have, we could have understood that kind of in an abstract way by thinking about the problem, but really modeling it and trying to figure out how you model reliability and resiliency of uh, energy service, then forces you to zero in on what are you doing? What, what does the model want to do during these peak hours and these peak mm -hmm. times? And how is it actually keeping electric service reliable in the microgrid? And so I think we in the analyst community <clears throat> need to do more of that to make sure you always stay closely connected enough to the data and the modeling that you really understand the intuition behind what's happening. The other thing that I do that's just a great joy as an academic is have the opportunity to work with organizations, whether it's engine number one, you mentioned a paper that, that we worked on earlier this year, uh, companies that are themselves trying to decarbonize, organizations like the World Economic Forum or Brookings Institution, which have a, often are not really focused fundamentally on energy, they're focused on other things and the interactions between energy and climate and those things. And, and that forces a wider perspective that's help, very helpful. Mm, that's great. And that'll lead me to my final question for you, which is a lot of our work at Adam and Teen with our clients is ultimately about individuals changing their posture and relationship with the idea of disruption from reactive or defensive to embracing and forward thinking. Um, do you have any thoughts or advice or experience lessons learned on how one makes that internal transformation personally? Yeah, so um, I, by the way, I'm skeptical that it's going to be us as individuals that are really going to drive the energy transition. This is a large infrastructure challenge. And so individuals are important in that, you know, the sentiment of society affects the politics. 
Um, and, if, and the change in the technology affects what's possible. And so as the technologies improve, partly because policies push those out in, in niche markets, then the politics become easier because the cost of transition is, is not as high. And so in the places that are where everyone's not running around clamoring for the transition, it's easier for them to do that. And so it's this perspective of thinking about how the politics and the technology interact is one of two things that I spend a lot of time on. And, and that I think is a very important perspective It goes to what we discussed at the top of the, of, of the podcast about kind of blind spots inside the existing industry. The other thing that I think we've all had a visceral experience with during the pandemic, pandemic's back, is mm-hmm. um, exponential growth. People have a very hard time processing really what, what are the implications of a system that could scale very, very rapidly. If we were in IT, uh, then we'd have no problem with that because that's the whole business. It's a series of revolutions and every few years the incumbent idea dies, something new comes along and Google buys it. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and so you've got, you, you see this on a regular basis. The energy business probably won't change as rapidly as that, but I always pay close attention and often we, we use these S-shaped curves to describe diffusion, technological diffusion, where you've got early market shares, it takes a long time, you've got early investments, it's very risky, and then costs come down, performance improves, reliability goes up, and then you move out of these niche market into a more widespread diffusion and then reconfiguration of the whole market around you. And when you do out the math, and it's the same math for describing the spread of a virus, um, they have the same intellectual origins. Um, uh, what happens when something grows in a Petri dish very, very rapidly and takes over market share from its competitors in the Petri dish? Um, then you see this S-shaped curve. And a lot of what's interesting in the energy transition is in the early stages of this S-shaped curve. And so uh, what one has to do individually to prepare for that, in my case as an academic, somebody else's case as a you know, corporate strategist, somebody else's case yet again as an investor, is think about what happens when some, most of them will die, but when some of those organisms that are in the early stages of the need, of the of the diffusion really take off and how would you know that the takeoff is happening as opposed to it being a, an illusion? And I think real skill in this business comes from identifying those signposts that tell you you've got a real revolution here as opposed to the 97 revolutions that were predicted and didn't actually happen. Mm, David, you've given us so much great stuff to think about. Thank you so much for joining me uh, on the Energy Thinks podcast. Well, it's really a great pleasure. Nice to talk with you. That was our episode for today. Thanks so much to David Victor for taking the time to share his worldview with us. You know what was a game-changing insight for me? Uh, There were really two. One is David's willingness to say, I don't know over and over and over because really no one knows. And if a a visionary and academic and a paradigm changer is willing to say that, uh, that leaves some room for us to say that as well. And of course, the second one is this idea of changing the, the metaphor from the decarbonization toolbox to the decarbonization workshop or workshops. And that leaves a lot of room for thinking about the culture changes required and the inclusive environment for different people. So that, that's really interesting and important. Um, I hope you like what you heard today and that you'll take a moment to rate us. You can let me know your thoughts at our podcast website, energythinks.com backslash podcast. Uh, I really want to thank Adon Rubio, Lindsay Gage, and Michael Tanner for doing all the work behind the scenes that makes the Energy Thinks podcast 
as possible. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, and as always, I do wish you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.